0: It's amazing how quickly time is running when you have a good time it goes fast I trust that you're having as much a good time as I am sharing the wonderful word with you uh, many years ago a missionary had been sent to Africa and when he arrived at his location he was shown around the facilities and finally they showed him to a vehicle that he would be using. And they said, everything works fine except you have to push it. Well, he pushed it. And uh, what's interesting is that all he had to do was pop the clutch and off it went. In uh, some places, there are no NAPAs and uh, whatever other car places you have. I remember I went to a place called eBay, and when I got there, I uh, shut my suitcase, thinking that somehow I had changed the combination on it, only to discover that I hadn't, and I couldn't open my suitcase. So I thought, I'll, well, that's simple. I'll go down to the hardware store and buy myself some screwdrivers and use my old skills to open it up. Well, when I went downstairs, there were no uh, hardware stores around. And the only thing I could find was in the little store, a little small screwdriver set for eyeglasses. So I thought, okay, I'll use these. So I began to pick and pick and pick and pick and pick and pick and pick. Couldn't open the thing. So then I got a bright idea. I used to be a machinist. I'll go and get myself a drill and drill out the grommets. And then when I get home, I'll replace them. No drills to be bought. There were no hardware stores. There was no Kmart, nothing. So then, after three hours of trying to figure out how I was going to open the suitcase, I realized I hadn't prayed. So I knelt down and I said, Lord, I have this board meeting tonight. Please help me to open the suitcase. And I turned the knob, you know, the, the uh, numbers on it, and I hit the combination. And the suitcase opened. And the number was 333. Three, three. I'll never forget those numbers. <laughs> okay. So this poor man, he's pushing the car. Uh, mission service, usually you have to serve four, uh, five to six years. When I went over as missionary, I had to five, serve five years. And so for five years, pardon me, six years as missionary, figured out how to park the car on the hill so that when it was time to go, he could just l- let go of the brake and coast down and pop the clutch and off it went. And if there were no hills, of course, you had to get people's mercy to push them. When a new missionary came to replace him, uh, he did the same thing for the new missionary. Showed them around the facilities and everything else. And then he said, I want to tell you, you have an excellent vehicle that you can depend on. The only problem is, guess what? You have to push it. Well, the new uh, missionary went and looked at the vehicle, opened up the hood, looked inside, everything looked... It didn't look like it was intact, except there was a wire that was dangling. And so he went and got himself a screw and tightened that wire to where it belonged, went inside, turned the key. What is supposed to happen? (laughs) For six years, that missionary had been pushing and pushing and pushing. The problem was that the power was not connected. Let's pray together, shall we? Father... As we study your word, we pray for your spirit to guide and help us to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight's subject, we can begin Revelation 14. but There are many other passages I could have used in the Bible because chapter 21 says that, that people who do not keep the commandments will not enter into the city. But I wanted to start out with a positive statement because that one obviously uh, leaves people out. But this one uh, makes it plain that the the people of God are identified as commandment-keeping people. Do you see that? It says, here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the what? Commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Dealing with the commandments, I felt that I needed first to deal with grace. With what? With grace. Many of you, I'm sure, are acquainted with this verse. For by grace are ye saved, through what? Through faith and not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. What's interesting about this wonderful word grace is that if you ask the common person what is grace, the biggest definition that they come up with is unmerited favor. How many of you have heard that definition, unmerited favor? What does unmerited favor really mean? You know? Unmerited means what? You don't merit it. Favor is something that's done for you. Okay, so unmerited favor. Uh, now, that doesn't really tell you what it is. Just said you don't merit it. For example, if I give you a gift and you say, what is it? And I say, you don't deserve it," Does that tell you what it is? Yes or no? No. So... Unmerited favor simply means something you don't deserve. Favor you don't deserve. Is that what grace is? Well, obviously we don't deserve whatever it is. But that definition does not really help you to know what grace is. So let's consider grace in the the light of the subject tonight. In Acts chapter 4, verse 33, it says, And with great." Power gave the apostle witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and what was upon them all. And great grace was upon them all. Notice that it says with great power, they were able to give the witness. But what was it that gave them the great power? What does it say? Great grace was upon them all. So think about it. If they had had little grace, how much power? Little power. But they had great power, which was... And that which gave them, which, that which gave them the great power—pardon me—was the great grace. Here's another text concerning that. Paul says, "I'm not ashamed of what? The gospel of Christ for it is the what? The power of God and salvation. Remember, by grace are ye saved. So the gospel here is being synonymous with something called grace. But notice it says, "For it is the power of God unto salvation. The actual word power there is dunamis. What is it? dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. So, we could say, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the dynamite power of God unto salvation. In other words, to save a soul takes a lot of power. It's interesting that it's taken more effort on God's part to save a person than it took him to create a person. Have you ever thought of it that way? It took God more power to save us than to create us. Because God had to invest a lot of time, patience, and power to not only forgive you, but to ultimately save you into the kingdom. So, God offers power. Paul says it this way, Again, but by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace, which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. In other words, this grace that was put upon him was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but what? The grace of God, which was with me. So what enabled Paul to do all the work that he did? Was it that he had his own power to accomplish it? No. What enabled him to do that? He he confesses that it was the grace of God that enabled him to accomplish all that he did. Here's another text, Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the what? Power that worketh in us. So grace then is the power of God. In fact, here's the definition. Divine grace is the great element of what? Saving power. It is not merely God's mercy and willingness to forgive. It is an active, energizing, transforming power to save. Is it what? An active, what else? Energizing, transforming power to save. So grace then has to do with the power of God to enable a person to accomplish what otherwise, in his own strength, he could never do. Because when God is calling you to salvation, you cannot accept his invitation without the power that he gives you to obey. You cannot change without the grace of God. So, why do we need grace? Because the Bible says that we are like the Ethiopian that cannot change his skin or the leopard that cannot change his spot. It says, then are you able to do good that are accustomed to do evil. And the scripture says that we all have what? Sin. Sin. And so God provides grace. How many of you have been in one of these? Any of you have ever been in one of these? I see a few hands. Well, I have to raise my hand with you. Uh, my mother told me I had to go to the confessional and, and frankly, I didn't want to go because mom did not know what I was up to and I didn't want her to know. So I was afraid to go in there. And so finally she persuaded me with her sharp nails, uh, getting a hold of my earlobe. And I simply just obeyed. And so I went into this place, scared to death. I asked somebody, what do you do inside there? Just say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. And I thought, well, that's easy. So I went in there and it was spooky because it was dark inside. And when I knelt down, I said the magical words, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. And all of a sudden, I heard the spooky voice from someplace in the cubicle. What have you done? And I was not very anxious to. So I made up a story. I have to confess to you that I told a fib. And I was elated with what he told me I had to do. Go burn a candle and say so many Harold Marys. Well, I thought, boy, I get off easy. So I got out of the cubicle. I went in a little devil and I came off a worse devil because now I... Added to all the stuff that I had done. Plus the lie I had told the priest. You understand what I'm saying? So, here's the problem. Most people think that grace is forgiveness. What do they think? Grace is forgiveness. But if all that God would offer us would be forgiveness, then we would be confessing for how long? For all eternity. Confess, confess, confess. Uh, But God wants to give us Power to change. Therefore, the man inside that cubicle, irrespective of how sincere he may be, cannot do for me what I need have done for me as a sinner. I need power to change, not just something to recite. Reciting something does not change the heart. It is the power of God that changes the heart. And therefore, with all his good intentions, saying so many Hail Marys and lighting a candle does not do it. Therefore, God is not offering us mere forgiveness, as grateful as I am for forgiveness. God is offering us more than forgiveness. He's offering us power to overcome so we don't have to continue to be forgiven for that which we have done. May I repeat that again? He offers us power to overcome so that we don't have to keep doing the things that we have done. God wants to change us and make us victorious. That is one revelation It repeats, to him that overcometh, to him that overcometh, to him that overcometh, to him that overcometh. And I'm citing some of the verses there so you can see. It's repeated several times. God wants you to overcome. What do you say? He wants to provide for you something greater than forgiveness. We all need to be forgiven for we all have sinned. But God wants to take us beyond just being forgiven. He wants us to make us victorious so we don't have to keep repeating the same thing over and over and over and over again. And there are some people who finally give up and say, I'll never, I'll never overcome. I'll I'll never change. And there's some loved ones who unfortunately put us in molds and say, that guy, he'll never change. I've heard uh, wives say that about husbands. Him, he'll never change. Well, when it's... When it's dependent upon the human being, it is true. God says with man this is impossible, but with God how much? All things are possible. So, man can overcome. God therefore provides for us something called grace. Notice Hebrews chapter 4, 16, it says, Let us therefore come how? Boldly unto what? The throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find what? Grace to help in time of need. So, grace then is an active element. If it's helping you, then it's doing something for you. What do you say? Okay. Notice it says, find grace to help in time of need. So, we approach the throne of grace to receive that which you and I don't have. You and I are frail when it comes to changing and overcoming sin. If it were not for the blood of Christ, we would be hopeless. But God had provided the forgiveness so that we then can receive the grace that we need to be overcomers. And that's what grace is all about. So when did grace begin? Unfortunately, there are many churches. Did you hear what I said? There are many churches that teach that when Jesus came, that's when grace started. But before that, everybody who was saved was saved by the law. They say the Jews were saved by the law, but the Christians are saved by grace the sad thing about that is that there's no Jew that has ever been saved by the law the law does not save if any Jew is saved they're saved by by grace and grace did not start when Jesus came to this earth grace was around before let me show you two verses 2nd Timothy 1 9 it said who have saved us and called us with an holy calling not according to our works but according to what To his own purpose. And what's the next word? And grace which was given us in Christ Jesus when? Before the world began. You see, if grace is the power of God, then then that power has been around as long as God's been around. So it says that the grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Here's another text. Titus 2.11 for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to only the New Testament people. Is that what it says? For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared only to the Christians. Now what does it say? It says all men. And there are there are people who who are, have a challenge with this, but the reality is that God makes it plain that grace has been around, and none have been saved. By their own bootstraps. Everyone who's saved is saved by the grace of God. Noah found what? Noah found grace. What did Noah need grace for? The Bible says in the days of Noah that things were pretty bad. Things were what? Things were pretty bad in the days. Uh, the scripture makes it plain that man's heart Imagination was wicked, continuously. The current of things in the days of Noah was pretty serious. The human race almost came to extinction. For were not by the grace of God, there would be no human beings on the earth today. But the Bible says that God gave grace to Noah. Noah needed the grace of God to resist the current of the tide that was influencing the world in his day. Through the grace of God, Noah built the ark. By God's grace, Noah and his family entered into the ark. By the grace of God, they were kept safe inside that ark. And by God's grace, they came safely on the other side, on dry land. And by the grace of God, they offered sacrifices to thanksgiving for the salvation that God had wrought In their behalf. The Jews also found grace. The Bible says uh, concerning. uh, That day. God saw that the wickedness of man. Was great on the earth. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart. Was only evil continually. And so. God's grace in the Old Testament. Is found in several verses of scripture. Psalms 84 verse 1. For the Lord God is a sun. And shield. The Lord will give what? Grace and what? And glory, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. So, did they have grace in the time of David, who wrote Psalms? Yes or no? Did they understand that grace was an active element? Yes. Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the what? To the lowly. And so, the person who recognizes that they have a need can turn to God, who can provide for them the power to accomplish what they otherwise could not accomplish. So, you can see they are graced. The Jews, notice it says, Thus saith the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found what? Found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause them to rest. Yes, the people of Israel could never have saved themselves by their own bootstraps. It was Jesus that delivered them from the Egyptian bondage. It was the Lord that provided all of those uh, terrible plagues that affected the Egyptians. It was the Lord that gave them manna. It was by God's grace that they were able to go from Egypt all the way 40 years in the wilderness. And by the grace of God, they were able to enter into the land of Canaan. All by God's grace. So, Romans 5.20 Paul says, moreover the law entered that sin of the offense might abound. In other words, it was plain that there was already the offense. The law simply made it obvious. But then it says, where sin abounded, grace did much more what? Abound. In other words, obviously, grace is more powerful than sin. And it is is obvious. In, In other words, when you get sick. And you go to a doctor, he has to give you a medicine that's stronger than the sickness. Is that true? If the medicine that he gives you is equal to the, to the disease, it's not going to do anything for you. So the medicine must be stronger. The antibiotic must be stronger than the disease itself. And so Christ then, recognizing man has a sickness, must provide something stronger than the sickness so that man can become well. And that's good news what do you say so God gives us grace it is as real as the air we breathe the power of God is real and he provides that which you and I desperately need to be overcomers and so Paul makes it plain but what is this this thing called law the Bible says that if you sin you have sinned against what against the law so This is important because the confusion that people have between law and grace. There are many people who say that all you have to do in the New Testament is believe. You don't have to worry about those commandments anymore. How many of you have heard that? All right. Well, the reality is that that is not true. The problem is that we are still sinners. And even the people who say that the law is done away with claim to be sinners. So, obviously then, the commandments are still present. And the thing is this, and I'm going to share something with you that maybe you've never heard before, but that's all right, that's why you come to the seminar. The scriptures many times uses something called subaudition audition language. Uses what? Subaudition language. Have you ever heard that word before? How many of you have heard that word before? Well, you've all been. Subaddition language simply is this: If I if I say uh, to my son, "I want you to paint my door white," when I go away and return, what color do I expect? White. Now there were many other alternatives. He could have painted red, black, yellow, and so I could have said, "I don't want my door red or yellow or pink or blue or purple, etc." I could have said that but just by saying I want my door white it eliminates all other it what it eliminates all other so my son if he's going to follow what I'm asking is gonna paint the door white if he paints it another color then he didn't paint my door he painted his door you understand what I'm saying so when the Bible says for example God made the world in six days by making that statement, sub he is saying that there are no other alternatives. You cannot say that God made the earth in uh, 6,000 years. Because it doesn't say that. He says six days shall thou labor and do all that work. And when he says the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God, sub speaking, there are no other alternatives. God does not have to tell you. You can't worship on... Tuesday. You cannot worship on Monday. You cannot worship on Friday. He doesn't have to say it by saying worship me on the seventh day. That simply cuts out any other option. Does that make sense to you? Yes or no? Okay, so sub additionally, God makes statements that are emphatically explicit with the hope that the ones that are listening will simply follow what he says. He doesn't want to have to take time to tell you all that you cannot do. He simply says one thing, thou shalt not kill. And by that eliminates all other options. In other words, if you're going to follow me, you won't kill. But he doesn't tell you what you can do, because the sky's the limit. How good you could do, how much good you could do. How kind you can be how good you can be you understand yes no all right so God gives us the commandment now Paul says this I had not known sin but by the what by the law for I had not known lust except the law had said what thou shalt not cover it. okay so now we know that sin has to do with what with the Ten Commandments with what the tenth commandment because thou shalt not cover it comes from where from the tenth commandment which commandment do you know who said ten yeah the tenth commandment thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's wife thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's house nor his servant nor his maid servant, nor his cattle nor his house nor anything that is thy neighbors that's that's the tenth commandment so Paul is saying basically I would not have known that it was wrong to lust unless the commandment has said, thou shalt not lust. So, did Paul understand this subadditional situation? Yes, but we didn't. <laughs> okay, so the law then is what? Perfect, it is holy, it is just, it is good, it is righteous, it is truth, it is a light and a lamp unto our path, and Jesus said it cannot be destroyed. I wish I had time to go through you with Psalms 119, but read Psalms 119 for yourself and in your home. And when Jesus says in Matthew, it says, not one jot, not one tittle. Most people think jot has to do the dotting of an I, a tittle, the crossing of a T. That does not explain what Jesus is talking about. A jot is actually the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It is What? The smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. If you look at Psalms 119, you will see that it's divided into the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Eight verses apiece. So the first verses start with A, the second start with B, and so forth. All the way to, it's about 172 verses. And what's interesting is that that chapter is totally the chapter of the law of God. It explains the law of God by using different terms. Law, statutes, judgment, word thy way but it repeats it over and over and over again every eight verses starts with the next letter and when it gets to the jot it is the smallest letter of the hebrew alphabet and the reason why jesus said not one jot of the law can be removed a tittle is simply a little stretching of one of the letters to make a difference between one letter and the other and when Jesus said, the jot cannot be removed, if you go to the commandments of God, the first commandment is, thou shalt not have the, any other God before me. It starts with, I am the Lord thy God. And the word thy, the word God is actually four letters, consonants that are used. Because the Hebrews did not believe they could write out the full name of God. Those four consonants begin with jot. Begin with what jot. If you remove the jot from the law, who are you removing? God. Who are you removing? God. That's why Jesus said, "Not one jot, nor one tittle, shall be removed from the law; till all be fulfilled." How many of you knew that? You didn't know it. Well, maybe I should print it out so you can have it. But it's very, very clear that the jot is the first letter of the name of God. And if you remove the jot, you have removed God from the law. So no wonder that the enemy has attacked the law so much. Because he doesn't want people to follow the God of the law. Because if you follow the law, that's why Paul wrote, for, for Christ is the end of the law. And some people say, there, Jesus, end of the law. No, Paul uses the word end as the outcome of the law. Christ is the end of the law. In other words, the law leads you to Christ. Now. The problem is that there are several laws in the Old Testament and one of this is a moral law and the other one is a ceremonial law. And it's a ceremonial law that finally was removed, not the moral law. The ceremonial law simply dealt with the sacrifice and the oblations and days that were called Sabbath days that could fall on Wednesday or Thursday or Tuesday, etc. There was the Passover, Yom Kippur etc. Those particular days were called Sabbath days. So that to the Jewish mind they knew that if when that day came, if whatever the time of the wicked came on, they were to stop work just like the Sabbath. So that's what they were called Sabbaths. And what's interesting then if you look in Colossians chapter two it says that nailing to to the cross the ordinances that were against us. And the Bible explained that the laws that were written in the book were the ones that were against us. But the Ten Commandments were supposed to be life to us. So here's the problem. Since God has given us the Ten Commandments, how many of you have violated the Ten Commandments? How many of you have lied? How many of you have misrepresented? How many of you have done things, thought things? All right, so all of us are guilty. Would you agree with that? Therefore, it's clear then that you and I don't have the ability to live in harmony with the principles of God on our own. And because God knew that, God knew that unless he did something for you, you would not be able to make it to the kingdom. Now, the good news is this. God never provides you with something that you cannot do. He provides you with something that you can do with his help. So the commandments are a promise. The promise is thou shalt not kill, it means I don't have to kill. Thou shalt not bear false witness, it means I don't have to lie. In other words, they become promises telling me that I do not have to do these things. Good news? Amen. Because when you do these things, you become enslaved and in bondage to those things that you do. Isn't that true? And it brings what to your conscience? Guilt. Is that true? And besides guilt, it brings all other consequences that are terrible. I mean, the Thou should not commit adultery. Uh, if, if spouses were faithful to each other, you wouldn't have the broken homes that you have and all the terrible consequences that happen with children as a result of broken up homes. Now, the law is simply like a mirror then. Like a what? Like a mirror. It just simply reveals what you are. How many of you went to the mirror when you, before you came to the meeting? I see you're not raising your hand. But I know you did. You want to make sure your hair was okay? I know I did. I took a short nap for 15 minutes. And when I woke up, I was ready to go out. My wife said, wait a minute. She said, your hair's sticking up in the back. Oh. I went to the mirror and sure enough, I wet it and flattened it down. Okay. So we go to the mirror. The mirror doesn't comb my hair. The mirror almost... all. all Uh, Only tells me that my hair standing up The mirror doesn't clean my face. It only tells me that my face is dirty or clean you understand? So the law is simply just a Reflection of, of God's character and whether or not you're in harmony with it or out of harmony with it And when you discover that you're out of harmony with it of yourself, you can say I'm hopeless But through Christ you have hope to change so you become Whatever Jesus wants you to become. So the law points out what? Sin. Sin. Okay. Now the question is, who gave the law? Do you know? Was it the Father or was it Jesus? How many of you say the Father? Can I see your hands? How many of you say Jesus? Can I see your hands? How many of you don't want to raise your hand? Many guilty. Okay. The reality is this. That the law was actually given by Christ. The entire Bible is a revelation of Christ. Jesus said, search the scriptures, for in them you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Okay, So, just let me give you a few statements, just to prove it. Jesus said, if you love me, do what? How many of you remember this one? All right. Where does that come from? Is Jesus quoting, or he's just saying something out of the, the, um, just an expression? He's actually quoting. Where's he quoting from? He's quoting from the second commandment. Which one? The second commandment. The last part of the second commandment says what? Showing mercy unto thousands of them that what? Love me and what? And keep my commandments. Jesus is actually stating there that he is the lawgiver by making that statement. And the Hebrews who knew the laws very well, they could recite them in their sleep. When Jesus said that, they were angry because they assumed Jesus was claiming to be God. And their assumption was correct. That's exactly what he was claiming. He is the one that led them. Here's another statement. Uh, in the Genesis 17, 1, it says, I am the mighty God. In Exodus 3:14, 14, it says, I am that I am. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is claiming to be the one that led the children of Israel. In fact, in the book of first Corinthians chapter 10 verse 1 through 4 it says that they followed the rock and that rock was Christ. Christ was the angel that directed the Israelites from Egypt. He was the one that brought about the plagues. He was the deliverer. He was the cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. He was the holy Shekinah that dwelt in the sanctuary. He was represented by the lamb. He was represented by the priest. All of the Old Testament focuses on Christ as the Savior, the Redeemer. Okay? So, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our what? Lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will what? There you have it. Who is the Savior? It is Jesus. Okay? So, you can see from the scriptures that Jesus is the one That is the lawgiver. You can well understand why it is that there is an attack by the enemy through the churches on the law of God. You would think that the church would uphold the teachings of Christ, but they are doing the opposite. They think they're helping people by just minimizing and say there are only two laws. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are wonderful statements. However, they're so summarized that most people don't even know what that means. How do you love God? And how is it that you love your neighbor? It's not a feeling. There are principles that, have, that are involved in loving God and loving your neighbor. What do you say? Okay. Paul himself says in, in, in Romans 13, he says, For this thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear for witness, thou shalt not covet. If there be any other commandment that is briefly comprehended in this saying, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 11. And so, it is clear then that love is just not a phrase. Love has to be do with action. With what? With action. All right? So, that's why Paul says, He said unto me, my grace is what? Sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, would I rather glory my infirmities, that the what? That the power of Christ may rest upon me. By the way, the word strength is dunamis and the word power is dunamis. Paul recognizes that when he was praying that God would remove whatever issue he had, some people think it was blindness, that he prayed and asked God to remove it. And finally, he realized that God was not going to remove it, but God had given the grace to deal with it. Many times we come across situations in our lives that we want God to remove it, But many times God does not remove it. But God will provide the grace that you need to bear with it. What do you say? He did that for Elisha. Elisha had a double portion of the Holy Spirit. And when a young king came to Elisha asking what to do. Elisha said beat three times. I mean beat on the ground. The king only beat three times. And Elisha said why did you only beat three times? You should have beat seven times. If you had beaten seven times then you would have beaten your enemy seven times but now you'll only have three victories against your enemy but it says Elisha was sick and then it says Elisha died of a lingering sickness there you have it a man who has a double portion of the spirit of God dies of a lingering sickness you would think that after he was buried by the way and they put his body in a the place there's a war that breaks out and there are two men carrying a dead body, and they, they realize they're going to have to drop this body so they can hasten. And so they drop the body in a hole, and it turns out that it's the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the dead body hits the, dead bo- the bones, he resurrects. Amazing. Why couldn't Elisha remain alive since he had the Spirit of God upon him double times? Well, it wasn't God's plan. God gave him the grace to die by grace. What do you say? You understand what I'm saying, so Paul understood what grace meant. So let me give you a, a personal uh, explanation of that. Here's my mother with five of us boys, and as I said, my brother's over here, so he's the one missing in the picture. When when we were uh, born, we were born in Puerto Rico. We were extremely poor, and uh, my mother, however, was very gracious. She always had her. Home open to anybody even though we were living in a shack living on a, <laughs> sleeping on one bed but anyway my mother's best friend lost her place of, of, uh, of lodging and out of kindness my mother invited her to come and stay with us until she found her own place again well the lady came and stayed with us for a while and then she left with my father So she betrayed my mother's trust. And I remember my mother It plunged her into great despair. The best friend that she had betrayed her. It ran off with her husband. And I lived with that. We all lived with that for years. Because when mother would suffer some loss, like after that, my little sister, who my mother adored, died. And when she died, I could remember my mother saying, God, wherever that woman is, curse her. Curse her, oh God. Curse her. Well, my mother found another man who was kind enough to father us. We were six, six boys. We were five boys. The little girl, she died. Then another boy came along. So he then decided to move us to New York City. and uh, But he could only afford to pay for three of us plus my mother. My brother was already here in, in, the, in, in the States. Uh, and so my, uh, my stepfather then uh, brought us to New York, dropped us off in an apartment, went back to Puerto Rico to work and make enough money to send the rest of us, uh, the rest of the boys, to join us, and then he would come over. Well, unfortunately, uh, several months later, my mother got a telegram that he died. So my dad was way over the other, my, my my brothers were way over the other side of the ocean. My mother couldn't speak English she had no support etc and there she was desperately uh, tormented with the reality that her husband was dead in fact to this day we don't know where he was buried so my mother was in the strait with her children over there children here an immigrant didn't speak English I remember she finally went and got a job, and I was about six years old by that time. And uh, my little baby brother, I was a babysitter. I took care of him, I fed him, I changed his diaper, watched him all day long until finally mother came home. And I don't know how many jobs she had, but she worked, 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 until finally she got my one brother over and then another brother over. But when that happened, when my stepfather died and she got the telegram, she wept uncontrollably. Just like when my little sister died, she just wept uncontrollably. And then she would remember that woman who brought her all this misery. And she would curse her. I remember one time she said, if I ever get a hold of that woman, I will tear her eyes out. My mother had hatred for that woman. And so, then my mother got cancer and we got the same message again. And that was, uh, this time it didn't seem hopeful. In those days, if you had cancer and they did surgery, you maybe survived for a few months. And they told us that. And I can remember my mother praying. I could hear it through the walls. Your meal she would say you can't take me now if you take me who's gonna take care of my children let me live until they're old enough to take care of themselves then you can take me fortunately the Lord heard her prayer because my mother ended up living until she was 86 years old but at the same time that she would pray God be merciful to me she would also pray God that woman Cursed that woman, wherever she is. Well, by God's grace, my dad then, uh, while he ran off with that woman and left that woman and went off with another woman. There's my stepfather. uh, Altura was his name, Arthur. And so my father then found another woman. Her name was Lolita. And Lolita uh, was a Methodist. Uh, My dad was... Catholic, but he was still religious. He, he drank a lot, womanized and all that. Well, anyway, it turned out that this lady uh, heard a radio program called La Voz de Esperanza, The Voice of Prophecy. And she began to take Bible studies until she found out that they were from the Adventist church because she got the lesson on the Sabbath and she said these people are Adventists. I don't want to have anything to do with them. So she quit the lessons. But she didn't realize what she had done. She wanted to get her husband converted, so she asked him to help fill out the lessons. Okay, So he was filling out the lessons to help her get the diploma when she finished the lessons. Well, what she didn't realize was that she, she trapped herself because he made a statement. And he said, if these people can help me quit drinking, I'll join them. And she didn't know what to do. She didn't want to have anything to do with Adventists because they thought, she thought they were a cult, you know, uh, wild people and all that. But the, the, her husband said, if they help me quit drinking, I'll join them. And she wanted her husband to quit drinking. So she gave up the, the fancy that she would have nothing to do with it, hoping that somehow they could help him, her help husband him quit drinking. Well, by God's grace, my dad and she went to the Adventist church and they did help him quit drinking. What do you say? And when that happened, My dad then was baptized. And I just found out, do you recognize that man, Sam? I just found out tonight that Sam knew the pastor. He worked with the pastor that baptized my father, Sam Robinson, over there at the corner. I did not know that until tonight. All right, so he baptized my dad. By God's grace, my dad left us drinking, left us womanizing. He became a very, very zealous missionary with his wife. They then decided they would leave Chicago, go back to New York and try to find the family to bring the gospel to us. And it took 10 years. My mother resisted. My mother really resisted because it was he that had abandoned the family. It was he that left us to die. And some of us didn't want to have anything to do with that man. But he continued to witness and witness. And finally, my brother, by God's grace, got converted. And then this couple here got converted. And then I came home and the infection hit me. And I became converted. And then I went after my brother, Freddie and my mother. And by God's grace, then, the four of us ganged up on my mother and my brother. And by God's grace, my mother became converted. And then we went after our cousin and he got converted then we went after our aunt and uncle and they got converted it was a wonderful plague that swept through the family but the grace of God what do you say and well what happened then was that he became a pastor and I became a pastor and so he was in Chicago and I was in New Mexico and I got invited to go and preach at a Spanish church in Chicago so he said hey you are coming to Chicago to preach in Spanish why don't we invite mom to come over? You pay half of the ticket and I'll pay half of the ticket. We're still doing that today. We're still dividing the cost for something issues <laughs> that come up. And so we said, all right, all right, we'll do that. So I, I paid half of the ticket. He paid half of the ticket. And mom from New York went to meet us in Chicago. My wife and I and my, and my sister-in-law and I, uh, we then took mother to the church. And my brother disappeared. He said, I got to go and do something. I'll be right back. So we're waiting in the entrance of the church, okay? And he's, not, he's he's away, doing something, waiting in the foyer until I get back. We're waiting. And I remember my mother was standing, facing the door, the entry, like this. I was standing here, my wife was standing here. I don't remember where Myrtle was. But anyway, uh, we we were waiting. Well, what was going on is that when he was knocking on doors, he found that woman that had run off with my father. See? And so he said to the woman, hey, by the way, remember the little baby? Oh, I used to love that little baby talking about me. Well, today he's a man. He's a preacher. He's going to be preaching in church. Wouldn't you like to hear him? Oh, I'd love to hear him, she said to him. So he went to invite her and then promised to pick her up. What he didn't do was tell my mother. So we're waiting there at the entrance, and he then brings her. And the first one that enters into the door was the lady. Now thirty five years had passed, okay? That my mother had gone through cancer twice and all the suffering and everything that she went to raising six boys in the ghettos of New York City. Bless her soul. Anyway, she's waiting there, the door opens, she lifts up her face, thinking it's her boy. But it's not her boy, it's the lady. when I lady stepped inside she froze because they fixed eyes and my mother immediately recognized her and she immediately recognized my mother and I I did not know what my mother would do as we watched her cheeks began to quiver her tears began to flow. And rather than tearing that woman's eyes out, she opened up her arms, stepped forward, took the woman in her arms, embraced her and kissed her. Only the grace of God could do that in the heart of a human being. Are you hearing what I'm saying? The grace of God. No wonder the writer wrote, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Ah, friends, you and I need the grace of God. There's some of you who are struggling with some issue in your life. Some sin that you feel you cannot overcome. Something that you think you cannot do. Humanly speaking, you think it's impossible. I can't change. I can't give it up. I can't surrender it. It is true that by your own strength, you will never be able to do that. That's why you need the grace of God. Most of the time, we're like the man pushing the car. Trying to push the car. Keep on pushing the car. Not realizing that the problem is that the power is not connected. We need to not only pray for forgiveness. But we need to beg for that grace that can change us. What do you say? We need to pray for God's power to come into our lives. And make us different. To give us victory over sin. Give us victory over temptation. Give us victory over our own temperaments. Our own hopelessness. Give us victory and make us what we can become to Christ some of you may be struggling with something but you can put it on the altar with the Lord tonight you can say Lord I've been praying for forgiveness forgive me forgive me forgiveness but tonight I want to pray for the power Lord give me that power anyone would like to raise your hand to, for that tonight Lord, I need your power. There are things that I see that and I need to change. And I don't see how I can change it. By God's grace. By what? By God's grace. There's no question that you can. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we're so thankful for thy law. It is a light unto our path. A lamp unto our feet. By keeping it Is joy everlasting. By obeying it, we demonstrate our communion and connection to thee. And since, Jesus, you are the center of that law, the lawgiver, we now know that to reject the law is to reject you. And it's our desire to make you our savior, our Lord, and our king. And Lord, for those who are struggling with something that they have not been able to change or overcome. May they leave here tonight with that certain assurance that in Christ all things are possible. May they connect to the power and receive that which they desperately need. And we thank you for making that provision. In Jesus' name, amen.